If you will take your Bible and open it to Ephesians 4. Today we're going to look at one verse. It's the 25th, Ephesians 4, 25. I would like you to read along with me as I begin there in verse 25 and read down through the 32nd verse. Here Paul says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would take this, your word, and open it to our understanding. Lord, that you would show us how to live in light of the gospel. That you would show us how to live as light in this world to be holy and a separate people under your own glory. Accomplish this in us, and for your own sake, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You'll note the first word of verse 25 points us backward to the truth that has been set in verses 20 through 24. Really, it goes further back than that, but this is where we're going to to begin to remind ourselves of something we looked at last week. The foundation for our obedience is set in verses 20 through 24. You may remember from last week, we looked at these truths in verses 20 through 24, not as things that we are to do in our own strength and seek to obey, but these are things that Paul has reminded us as believers that has been that have been done for us by Christ and applied to us by the Spirit when he so worked in us creating a new heart in us giving us faith to respond this is what Paul has said in verse 20 and remember as we read this this is the ground that he will use to begin to command believers Under the inspiration of God, with the authority of an apostle, he begins to make expectations known of what God would have us to do, how he would have us to act as his people. We are indeed a people set apart. And so he said in verse 20, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, As the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Before we go any further, let me remind you of the great distinctions that are made here between the old man of which Paul says in conversion has been put off and the new man which Paul says in conversion has been put on. The old man, he says, grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. The new man, on the other hand, and as far extreme the other direction as you can go, he says, has been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So in verses 25 through 32, what we have read are the characteristics of this new man. And it really extends to the end of the epistle, but these five or six things, depending on how you number them in verses 25 through 32, correspond 
to this new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. If you were to ask the question, how can I live a life that is honoring and glorifying to God, a life in which I am not trying to commend myself to Him for my justification or the maintenance of my salvation, because those two things are impossibilities for us, but rather a life that is living in light of the gospel and an expectation that is pleasing to Him, a life that just may cause someone around me to ask me the reason for the hope that is in me, a life that is honoring to God at every turn, then verses 25 through 32 are the beginnings of that life. Five or six things that we are told here, and again this morning, Lord helping us, we're going to only concentrate on the first. But perhaps this is a good place to bring Paul in as commentary on what he's written here in Ephesians chapter 4. And you know this, the best place to turn for commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. So when we read in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And let's stop there and, and understand to whom this grace of God that has brought salvation has appeared. Paul qualifies it by saying to all men. And if contextually, if you were to go back to Titus chapter 2, you'll see that he has just been speaking of old men, older women, young women, young men, and bondservants. So Paul here, in bringing out this, this, this phrase, all men, he is referring to all men who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this grace of God that has appeared, which brings salvation, that in verse 12 he says, teaches us to deny ungodliness, and worldly lusts teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It teaches us that we should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The reason we turn to Paul here in Titus chapter 2 is to shed more light on what he is saying to us here in Ephesians chapter 4. And if I could paraphrase, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, that conversation that Christ had with Nicodemus, you must be born again. Those that have been born again by the Spirit of God then live life as the new men and women that they are. Sanctification is a fruit of regeneration. Those that have been justified in the sight of God, declared righteous based upon Christ's work applied to them by faith, then do necessarily begin the process of sanctification. There is probably not a line of doctrine more blurred than the one between justification and and sanctification. That's why I'm thankful for the overlap here in our study of Ephesians chapter 4 and what we've been studying in the Baptist Confession of 1689 in our first hour meeting. The last few weeks we've been studying the chapter on sanctification. Even this morning we studied the expectation which the confession terms evangelical obedience of those who are Christian. And we have to differentiate from the beginning this gospel obedience from a more legal obedience. Gospel or evangelical obedience is that which stems from your belief in the faith of, of the faith of the gospel of Christ that He has saved you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You have been saved by works the works of Christ in your place with no mixture or measure of your own. It is Christ's both passive and active obedience 
in pleasing his father in fulfilling his father's demands that have been credited to your account and that make you as a believer in Christ by faith justified in the sight of a holy God. All of Christ's works have been given to you and to me. Now that issues forth in what the old writers called evangelical obedience. We obey because we have been born again. We do not obey in hopes to be born again. We do not obey in effort to rebirth ourselves. We obey because we have received salvation and redemption through Christ. The confession again states, as we looked at this morning, that Christians are to pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given them in his word. Can I stay too long here and dwell on this? Evangelical obedience grows out of faith in Christ. We have to get this understanding in our heart and in our mind. And secondly, it is a fruit of our conversion or our regeneration. And then thirdly, it is a thorough obedience. We're not seeking to obey one command out of many. We're seeking to obey by the strength of Christ in us, which is continually given. We're seeking to obey all the commands that are given to us. And before we move on, I want to cover some ground that we looked at last week as well. In the realm of assurance. Assurance of faith, assurance of salvation. Because I think this is another place where the, the, the vision of the Christian becomes somewhat blurred. And no doubt, if you're a believer here and you've been a believer for any length of time, something has come into your life, some thought has come into your mind, you've done something with your hands, you've gone somewhere with your feet, something has come out of your mouth that has made you question whether or not you were truly Christian. The thought goes something like this. Would I be thinking these thoughts if I were truly Christian? Would I have said that in that given situation if I were truly a Christian? Would I have done that if I were truly a Christian? The thing to point you to when you struggle with assurance, the things that we as Christians need to go back to, is not first and primarily a measuring of the fruit we produce, though that has a part. You should be able in your life, in the life of those around you, should be able to observe in your life that you are bearing good fruit unto the glory of God. But that's not the first place that you run when you are lacking assurance of salvation. The first place that you run, the first place that you go to the Scriptures is where you were taught what Christ has done for you. That's why I think we best understand these verses 20 through 24 in the indicative sense that in our salvation, the old man has been cast aside. We have been buried with Christ. And we have been raised to walk in newness of life. And we have put on the new man. This work is finished. It's complete. These are things that Christ has done for you. If you are wavering in the area of assurance, look to Christ and His finished work in your place. Then and only then do you proceed or I proceed in this area of evangelical obedience. If you start in verse 25 without the foundation of verses 20 through 24, you will be eternally confused, you will, be, you will struggle so greatly with obedience to these commands if you don't understand the foundation upon which they are built. Last week again, we said that these are truths to believe in verses 20 through 24, not commands themselves because of the therefore of verse 25. 
Commands do not rest upon other commands. Commands rest upon indicative truth. And that's what we have here. If you read it this way, which again, the parallel of Colossians 3 verse 8 does read this way, since you have put off the old man and put on the new man, then put away lying. You see, there's a ground given. The old man is gone, the new has come, therefore put on this new man. And so when we get to these verses that close out chapter 4, there are five things, some number them six, which radically mark the people of God as the people of God. I'm going to list them all, and then we're coming back to verse 25 to spend the rest of our time. You'll note them as being truthfulness, anger, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Stealing, let him who stole steal no longer. Your speech, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And your environment, if you will, of kindness. Be kind to one another. All five of these generally follow this pattern. There is a negative, put away lying, do not sin, do not steal, Then there is a positive, speak the truth. And then there is a motive. You see that very plainly here in verse 25. The negative, put away lying. The positive, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. The motive, for we are members of one another. That's the motivation. And these things teach us that our new lives in Christ as believers because of union with Jesus Christ, are as radically social and relational as they are doctrinal. Ian Hamilton points that out. Let me see if I can unpack what he says. Our new life in Christ is as radically social and relational as it is doctrinal. You follow what he's saying? It's not just that our minds are being renewed and that we're thinking more thoughts that are in align with what God has said, but these new thoughts and the renewal of our mind are actually affecting what comes out of our mouth and what we choose to do with our hands and how we treat one another. True doctrine always affects the way that you live. You've heard it said, Orthodoxy, right thinking, affects your orthopraxy, right living. That's always the case, and it's always the expectation. John Stott says the same thing with different words when he says, Holiness is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. We're not to go and live lives as secluded from those around us. We are saved by the grace of God in Christ and then placed into a community of believers which the Scripture calls the body of Christ. And therefore we are, according to verse 25 and the entirety of chapter 4, members of one another. So let's look at this first aspect of this in verse 25 and we're going to follow the pattern that verse 25 gives us looking at the negative first put putting away lying therefore putting away lying if you go immediately back to verse 24 and to the end this new man created according to god in true righteousness and holiness is to show forth this new creation in being a truth-speaking person. Perhaps you wonder, like I, like I have, 
of all of these things listed here in verses 25 through verse 32, and really of all of the things that we'll read in verses chapters 5 and 6 of how we are to live in light of the new men and women that we are in Christ, why does Paul, why does the Spirit of God inspire Paul to start first with this issue of lying and speaking truth? Well, since we have been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, nothing disparages the life of God in man so much as lying. It is the very opposite of who God the Father is. He is truth itself. He has never led you or me or us astray in the Scripture. What we read as the Word of God, we know to be the absolute truth. So much so, the Son of God has said of Himself, Christ said, I am the way, the truth. The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in the Scripture, is referred to as the Spirit of truth. And so when we take all of these together, people who have been saved by the decree of a truthful Father, through the work of the truth, the Son Himself, and this work applied by the Spirit of truth, which results in their conversion, then should accordingly walk as men and women of the truth. Nothing so marks you and I as Christians Nothing so marks us as believers in Christ as to speak the truth always in every situation. But there are great temptations to lie, aren't there? Really for two main reasons. Why are we tempted to lie? To gain some kind of an advantage over someone else? To make ourselves look better than we really are? Or, often, to avoid consequences. Those are the two main temptations that we have to lie. To gain an advantage in some way or another, or to avoid a consequence of our actions, our, our, our speech, whatever it may be, we're tempted to not tell the truth. And very often, children, listen, very often this does not always happen by an outright contradiction or a denial of the truth. Oftentimes, it's through shading the truth just a bit, not telling the whole truth, because the whole truth is what may very well bring consequences. Sometimes it's even hiding the truth altogether. The Scriptures tell us very plainly in verse 25, putting away lying. It's worded in this way so that we get the force that this is something that we must continually do. Because lying or being those who speak falsely come so easily. It is one of the primary marks of the old man. Notice in verse 23 or 22, the old man grows corrupt according to what? Deceit. Deceitful lusts. The new man is altogether different. He's been created according to God. In true righteousness, and holiness. Some of your minds may be going back to what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Lying has not only a place in the old man, lying has a father. And it's not our Father in heaven. And it's not obviously the Son of God who declared himself to be truth. And it's not the Spirit of God who is the very Spirit of truth 
Jesus asks a question in John 8. He says, why do you not understand my speech? It is because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Not just when we are tempted to lie and speak falsehood and error, but when that temptation comes fully in us and results in our lying, what we are doing is not giving evidence to ourselves or those around us that we are new people, new creations created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What we are depicting is that we are letting this old man, which has been put off, we're giving him place. And we are ceding ground to him. Some think that Paul has in mind here the lie. And I call it that because of the wording of Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. There we read where Paul writes, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you were to go back to Genesis in the beginning of creation, God spoke and it came to pass and then He pronounced it good. That, that cycle repeats itself over and over again in the creation account of Genesis. And we note there that the creation of God was perfect until the father of lies entered in to deceive. So that's just another example of the stark contrast between life created according to God in true righteousness and holiness and the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. The reason perhaps Paul starts with this as the head of these five or six areas of life that mark the people of God as the people of God is because nowhere else do we give off the confusion that we are not people of God or reflecting the light and the truth of God as when we give ourselves to falsehood. I don't think Paul could say it any more plainly. Therefore, putting away lying. Be done with lying, is what he is saying. Being untruthful is never going to be to your benefit. It may keep you from suffering some immediate consequence for your speech or action, but it will catch up with you in the end. You've probably all read or seen or listened to this illustration that goes something along the lines of a, of a child. Or Let's not just pick on children because it's not children only who struggle with this issue of lying, is it? Let's, let's bring it up a bit and, and call it the man who to avoid an immediate consequence shades or distorts the truth just a bit. And then in essence, all that does is start the ball rolling. If you're going to maintain this deception, other things in your speech and actions are going to have to correspond to it. So you just get deeper and deeper and deeper in the pit of falsehood and error. And at the same time, please note, that you are not, to any degree whatsoever, glorifying the God who created you in true righteousness and holiness when He birthed you anew in Christ. Be done with lying. 
There is no benefit in it whatsoever. In fact, it only devalues Christ in you. Now, there's forgiveness for lying. Thank God for that. If we confess our sins, we know He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now that we've seen the negative, the expectation of Scripture based upon being a new creature, created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, the negative first put away lying. And then the positive comes to us by a quotation of Scripture from an obscure minor prophet, Zechariah. Some of your Bibles show that by setting it in a different type. The positive reads, let each one of you, notice the, the all-pervasive application, let each one of you. It's not just a parent who must, who must speak truth. It's not just a preacher who must speak truth. Every believer created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, the expectation given to you in Scripture is that you will speak truth with your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? We, we have a whole teaching of Jesus on that, right? Obviously, it extends to any person that you would speak with, but in the context, especially. This is not given license to go and, and speak dishonestly or, or in a lying sense to those who are not Christian, those who are not in the body of Christ, but what it is doing is showing the utter importance of speaking truth with your neighbor, your brother or sister, in Christ. Zechariah chapter 8, I believe it's verse 13, maybe it's verse 16, is where this Old Testament quotation comes from. Paul brings it into this exhortation. If you were to go back and read the context of Zechariah and the quote that he pulls here and places down in this New Testament context, Zechariah there is speaking. And he is talking about speaking truth with one's neighbor who in context would have been a fellow Israelite brought back from captivity and seen to be a remnant of the new Jerusalem. So Paul makes application of this prophecy to Christians who are in the new covenant community because the church is the eschatological people consisting of both the remnant of the Jews and now newly converted Gentiles, having been brought into one new house as a new human race, so to speak. We saw that extensively taught by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Now what he is saying is that realizing that all of these lines of separation have been dealt with by the gospel of Christ, you come together and you speak truth to each other. But notice the motive. The motive is given at the end of verse 25. For, that's the hint that this is the motive. Reason being, we are members of one another. This is the premier way of Paul getting across to the people of God who they have become in Christ as being members of the body of Christ of having been placed into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now members of one another. Paul's favorite image or illustration of this is the human body. He goes into great detail in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians. You remember those verses where he speaks about the eye and the hand and the feet, and they, one cannot do without the other. But what is assumed there is the same thing that is assumed when your physical body is functioning as intended. Can you imagine the harm that would be done if your eye lied to your hand and say that this, that this pot that is placed upon a, boiling, upon a stove that is now boiling is not hot? What would happen? Your hand would unsuspectingly reach out and suffer the consequences. Or if your eye lied to your foot 
and said that that step is not nearly as far down as it appears to be. It would be like standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and your eye lying to your feet saying, it's not nearly as far down, just take that step. That would be a member of the body, in essence, lying to another member for their harm. The same imagery and illustration is brought back into the realm of the corporate body of Jesus Christ. Why are we to put away lying? Why are we positively to speak the truth with our neighbor? Reason is, we are members of one another. I think the, prim the primary application of this verse is that there is no place, no place within the body of Christ for deception. That there is no place in the body of Christ for one member to deceive or to lie to another. The same type of harm and consequence that would be wreaked on a physical body is done inside the body of Christ when members choose to lie to one another. Perhaps some of you carry baggage from this very type of thing that has happened in the context of a local body. And what may have started with a shading of the truth or a not telling of the whole truth ended in destruction. It's always the end. The timing may be different. It may take an hour, a week, a month, a year, or a decade. The timing is insignificant. The significant factor is the end is always the same. The body of Christ will always, always suffer harm and be damaged if the members of the body are not putting away lying and speaking the truth, each one, with his neighbor. I don't believe Paul can say it any more plainly than the way he has said it. And this is the first of the exhortations to sanctification that Paul gives us here to conclude the fourth chapter. And speaking of that, Sinclair Ferguson highlights two important areas of sanctification. Two things that you need to keep in mind as you are striving to be obedient to these commands. Here are the two things that he brings out. He says, there is no progress in holiness unless we put away what belongs to the old lifestyle and put on what belongs to the new simultaneously. These things very often happen at the same time. There is a putting away of the old and a putting on what belongs to the new. Notice with each one of these things that are listed in verses 25 through verse 32, there is the putting off aspect, put away lying. And then there is the putting on aspect, each of you speak truth with his neighbor. That pattern plays out over and over. I said last week that the biography of a Christian is always written in two volumes. The first volume is your life outside of Christ. It is your life as the old man which grew deceit, which grew corrupt according to deceitful lust. The second volume, post-conversion, after you have been born again, is the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness and sanctification. The first principle of it, according to Sinclair Ferguson again, is that we'll make no progress in holiness. We'll make no progress in being conformed to the image of Christ unless we put away what has belonged to the old and put on what belongs to the new and we persist in that until Christ returns. How long? How long do we how long must we be a people who put away lying, falsehood and deceit until Christ returns?
or he calls you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this life. The second thing that Sinclair Ferguson speaks of, and this is important, he says these imperatives, imperatives again being express commands, the do's and don'ts of the Christian life, he says these imperatives underline the fact that the New Testament does not dispense with the need for the law of God. If we believe as we should that the law of God is first and foremost a description of the character of God, the holiness and righteousness of God, you see that especially condensed into what we call the Ten Commandments or the ten words, however you want to refer to it. Why are those commands given to the people of the God in the Old Testament? Why are they reiterated in the New and even ratcheted up? The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us that pattern. You have heard said, quote, an old commandment, but I say to you, don't even look at a woman with lust in your heart. The old command is do not commit adultery. Jesus brings it up. And according to what we've read here, or what I've quoted to you by Sinclair Ferguson, New Testament believers need this aspect of the law of God. No longer as a tutor to bring us to Christ. That function of the law has been served. But to teach us how to live. To teach us how to perform and carry out what the Scripture calls the law of Christ, which is to love God with everything that you are and your neighbor as yourself. How are you going to love God with everything that you are? First four of the Ten Commandments. How are you going to love your neighbor as yourself? The last six of the Ten Commandments. No longer being used in our life to bring us to Christ. We've come to Christ. But now we are giving what we call gospel or evangelical obedience to these commands. It goes right back to verse 25, putting away lying, falsehood, error, or deceit, which interestingly enough corresponds to the seventh of the ten. What hinges on our obedience to these things? Our salvation? No. Please hear me. Your salvation is not hinging on your obedience to these commands. You will fail. You will fail most likely often. You will approach the Lord with Repentance, oftentimes through tears, confessing your sins, seeking forgiveness, and He will grant such to you because He's faithful and just. Your salvation is not hinging upon you keeping these commands. It is not up to you primarily to maintain your salvation through these commands. That's been squarely dealt with in verses 20 through 24, Christ has done this for you. Your, expect, your expectation of obedience is based upon what He has done for you. So what hinges is not your salvation, but the degree that you will glorify God in this new creature life that He has given you. The degree of your usefulness to Him the degree that you honor Him, the degree that you are light in the world, the degree that you are the salt of the earth. You can be none of those things if one of the characteristics of your life is being a person given to falsehood, error, deceit, and lying. In essence, you have cut the feet right out from under you. Perhaps this is why Paul begins here. If we can't begin by walking in the truth, 
and giving ourselves to it with great help, with a continual strengthening of the Spirit of Christ in us, then none of the rest of this has any ground on which to stand. You just flip over the page. Verses that we know well. If you want to get down to the absolute specific application, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you're not a man of the truth, who speaks the truth, lives in light of the truth, glories in the truth, you will not love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. If you are not a woman of the truth, who loves the truth, who walks in light of the truth, you will not submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Children, you are told in the first verse of chapter 6, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, or this is true. Honor your father and your mother. If you haven't first settled in your heart and mind as a converted child, who has been created anew according to God and true righteousness and holiness, that you will put away lying, then you will not honor your father and mother and obey them as you ought. You cannot obey and honor them and at the same time lie to them. You just can't. And if we make application of the servant-master relationship to which Paul addresses, if we make application of that to our relationship to those over us in, the, in our work world, whatever situation that may be. You can't give preference to them. You can't give obedience to them. You can't not be a men-pleaser in their sight if you haven't first settled in your heart and mind that you will be a person of the truth and that you're done with lying, deceit, and error, falsehood to any degree. But now you're going to speak the truth with your neighbor. Again, the immediate application of this is within the body of Christ. Why the negative and the positive? Well, you're members of the same body. The same blood of Christ was shed for that person that you may or may not be lying to as was shed for you. Be truthful. Come what may. Settle in your heart and mind. I will speak the truth. Come what may. Some of you, doors are going to be blown open for you by God to bear witness to the truth to speak the truth in season, a word fitly spoken, that door is going to be opened so wide, will you step through it and speak the truth? So help you God. You look back in church history, the names that rise to the forefront of church history, people that we revere and are thankful to, thankful for, are those that have walked through those doors and have spoken the truth, come what may. Some of them at the peril and cost of their own life. The ultimate price to pay for speaking the truth may very well be not your reputation, but your life. God only knows. But will we resolve to take it that far? knowing all the while we are not in this alone. You cannot put away lying in your own strength. You cannot do any of these things in your own strength. But I can tell you assuredly that the power of Christ dwelling in you, the Spirit of truth Himself, the Comforter who comes alongside you, whom the Scriptures have told us is indwelling you, has taken up residence in your heart and life. He can produce these things in you. He can.
if it will be done, he must. Maybe that's why Paul says at the end of these six things, five things, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How might you grieve him? Well, in this context, it would be by not speaking the truth when given opportunity. God help us to be people of the truth. That's what we glory in, right? Don't you glory that this is the truth? And you've believed it into the saving of your soul? That your Savior is the truth himself? And that the Spirit of God that does come alongside you and guides you is the Spirit of truth? If we glory in these things and we're right to do so, then we must endeavor with everything that is in us, the Spirit of God helping us to be people that speak truth, who are done with lying. God help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we're thankful that in your wisdom, when you created us anew, you created us according to yourself in true righteousness and holiness. Oh God, would you help us to reflect that in our everyday lives as we interact with one another as the body of Christ, as we have fellowship with one another, as we leave from this place, this assembly, and go back into the marketplace into the world in which we live. Help us to be marked. Help us to be known as people of the truth. Help us to speak it as we've already seen in this same epistle. Help us to speak the truth in love. Help us to not do damage to the truth by an unloving spirit. Oh God, help us to honor you, to live for your glory, to be profitable, useful servants. Help us to see the part of our responsibility before you and help us to glory in the fact that you are accomplishing these things from one degree of glory to another in us and for us. We give you all the praise all the glory for these new lives that you have made. We claim no credit. There's nothing in us deserving. It is all according to your good pleasure, all according to your mercy, all according to your grace. We pray that you would help us to give the right type of obedience to these commands, obedience that stems from faith in the gospel and love toward Christ not an obedience that is trying to start or maintain a standing before you. Please give that understanding to us all. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.